Hello and welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. Dr. Sharon Holland is a professor in American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she teaches a class on animal studies. She has written several books with her work exploring areas of race, feminism, and queer theory. Her next book, releasing this fall, will also look at the human-animal discussion through a black lens. Sharon lives in North Carolina with her two dogs, which have only helped to inform her passion and intimate perspective about animal studies and dogs in particular. Sharon, welcome to Dog Save the People. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where are we speaking to you from? I am in the beautiful, sunny state of North Carolina, and I'm in Chapel Hill. I've never been to Chapel Hill, but I've had a lot of friends that have studied there and have lived there, and it's supposed to be an amazing place. I love living here. My mother's side of the family is from this area. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I spent my summers in North Carolina with my grandmother. I always tell people I'm a Mason-Dixon line child. Enough of a foot in the north and enough of a foot in the south. So I grew up in two very different cultures. But my parents actually divorced when I was young, around seven or eight years old. I spent time in my father's house and in my mother's house, but mostly with my mom. When I would go to my father's house, my dad loved dogs and always had at least four dogs. And when I was young and I would go to bed there at night, I remember I would call the dogs down into the den and then I would run upstairs as fast as I could and jump into the bed because if I didn't get there first, there would be four dogs and me in a twin bed. I think my dad had a picture, I've lost it now, of me nestled among a couple of white shepherds and three Akitas at one time. And so those dogs were all curled up together and I was literally nestled in between them. It was one of my favorite photographs. What a wonderful memory and an introduction to having animals in your life. I feel so lucky in that I grew up amongst a lot of love, but I grew up with a keen sense of animal love. I went to a school called Berry Day School and Camp, and it was a Montessori school. And so at the school, we had animals, goats and chickens and horses. And that's where I learned to ride. It was great. We had two Great Danes and two relative mutts, and they would go out with us on the horses. And sometimes I'd get off the horse after riding for about 20 minutes and just sit down under a tree with the dogs curled up looking at the sky. And I remember as I was growing up as a young girl and a young woman, how different I was from other children because of this experience. Some of my first deepest bonds were with non-human beings. And that has very much inspired your work, I imagine. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know, you teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with the course on the question of the animal. How do you like teaching that class? I love my animal studies course. My students, I know, think I'm nuts. I get in there and I'm like, welcome to Introduction Animal Studies, otherwise known as on the question of the animal. And I'm like, this is my jam, y'all. We're going to have a great time. It's great fun just watching students open their eyes to the fact that human beings are not the only species on this planet and that we should think about decentering ourselves because that's what's going to produce justice in the world. Oh, man. I think about that all the time. And I think that certainly our dogs are sort of the gateway to helping us make those kind of connections. The idea of 
human dominion and mm-hmm. all of these other species that are on this earth and how we just take, we just assume that they're there for us. I tell my students that the human-animal distinction, at least philosophically, is one of the most important distinctions that you'll probably ever encounter. And I tell my students, no matter what separates us from one another, be it sexuality or gender or class or race or indigeneity, there is one thing that binds us, and that is the fact that every species on this planet is indebted to us for its very survival. And that is an imbalance that is catastrophic. And I tell them I'm teaching this course to maybe see if we could break that, to break down the distinction, to realize that its position in this world need not come from total domination of this planet. And I imagine that for your students who probably grew up with a dog or a cat or a domesticated animal, that they think, oh, I'm an animal lover, or I connect with animals, but it is so much more. And I love that you're talking about the human ideas of dominion over the earth and the animal species. Those are such huge and such important topics. Oh, definitely. If we're going to approach the grave issues of our world today, we have to get real about who we are in the world. Now, as much as we try to do as human beings, our efforts seem to fail. And I think that's because it's not part of nature, it's outside of nature. I bring a conundrum mostly to my graduate students who are working in areas of theory, the intersection of critical ethnic studies and feminist studies and queer studies, but I bring to them a question. That question has two nodes. The first node is that we as human beings will survive on into future generations and how we treat the planet depends upon that. Then there's a second one, which is a little bit more radical. How we treat the planet, and that means all of its species, rely upon our survival as human beings. It's important for us that this beautiful place be sustainable. This world is gorgeous, and in my opinion, gorgeous and perfect. I can't imagine and do not want to live anywhere else. And I am lucky to be privileged and to come from where I come from in order to enjoy the bounty of this earth. And I know that so many people around the world cannot and do not. I have been a reader of animal studies work, which in my opinion has three nodes. The first is philosophical, right? Human animal distinction. The second would be animal rights. has a lot to do with food studies, a lot to do with food systems and the treatment of animals in relationship to those systems or in relationship, say, to the making of cosmetics or the vaccines that save our lives. And the third would be the more radical node, animal liberation, then makes me an abolitionist to a certain degree because I believe in liberation for all beings. That's so nicely said. Sharon, what are some of the things you've noticed from your research in animal studies? I always, whenever I'm working on a project, I also teach a class that's related to it. And I think that helps me be honest as a researcher, allows me to play out ideas and to really get a sense of the field One of the things in animal studies that's really interesting is that few of the folks writing in animal studies about non-human life actually work with animals or spend a lot of time with animals. On the other side, if you look at feminists doing animal studies, Donna Haraway, Vicki Hearn, these folks actually work with animals, like every day as trainers, as biologists, as folks in animal science. And so I take their work very seriously and really engage that feminist ethic of care. 
and thinking about and considering animal life as consequential to how we move in the world as human beings. And as a Black human being, I decided to work on this book project and other, a Black feminist consideration of animal life, to make an intervention in animal studies around a number of key flashpoints. Blackness has so often been juxtaposed to the animal. One of the things I wanted my book to do was really break down that separation, that problem in animal studies, which prevents us then from seeing Black folks as consequential to how we think about animal life. I can think of no other group of African-descended subjects on this planet, in this part of the world, who have been more consequential to animal life than Black equestrians, Black trainers, the Black enslaved who basically built the sport of racing and equine care. And I am a rider. I have a lovely horse named Annie. I am her human, and she's a quarter horse, and she's a chestnut mare. And I went looking for a chestnut mare when I came back to North Carolina because that's one of the first horses that was raced in one of the first horse races in North Carolina that established the field of racing. Often people are like, wow, Sharon, you ride. They're like, that's so exceptional. And that must be a very white undertaking. I would chuckle and say, you know, yeah, because you don't really know that the horse I'm riding is probably from a long line of horses, trained, groomed, brought up by black subjects, enslaved subjects, and then freed subjects. I feel like actually by riding, I'm connecting to my heritage as an African descended person. And I think people are seeing that more and more now that we're not separate from the animal world, we've helped contour human beings' relationship to it, especially in terms of horses. What props up the distinction between human and animal? It's about language. It's about sentience. It's about suffering. It's about all of those qualities of human being that we see in animals that then we can connect to. And if we can't, then that animal's life is worth taking. I don't see a lot of confluence between myself and a slug, but I do love the beauty of their movement. You know what I mean? I tell my students, animal studies can bring you back to your own humanity. You don't have to see yourself in others in order to connect. You can connect through radical difference. Oh, I love that term too. Now, during the pandemic, were you working at home mostly? Yes. On and off, working from home. I basically had my book sitting next to me. I actually think that What helped me finish the book is that I didn't have to, as a Black, queer, female subject, just deal with microaggressions in my work. So many of the things that happen to you while you're walking around campus or just trying to do your job. And I got to spend all day with my dogs. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how were they while you were home? They were great. They sat on the couch right here. They barked whenever the delivery trucks would come. I would be on Zoom and I'd be like, sorry, my dogs are taking over. And they knew what five o'clock was. And when five o'clock came and I was still on a Zoom, my girl dog would put her head over the back of the couch and look at me and start to bark. She'd be like, shut it down. This is ridiculous. You've been on this thing all day long. Let's take a walk. Let's do something. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, man. I love that. Especially during the pandemic, I was in New York City and it was me and my three dogs at the time. And I was on Zoom all the time. But at certain times during the day, When it was their time to walk or be fed, that was it. And they wouldn't let me know. It put me into a new space where I could just turn off my camera, turn off the computer and go out and explore the world. And again, try to see it through their eyes. I think that also 
I couldn't be without a dog in terms of my scholarly and intellectual life because there's nothing that feeds your creativity more than beings who you make family with who get you out of your human body and get you into the wider world so you can ask questions. And so my dogs are integral to my creative process. And I do a lot of thought before I sit and write. I need a lot of space to do that. And my dogs help me with that space. I agree with you that the time that I have with my dogs, it allows me to dream again and to disconnect in a way that feeds that imagination. I wanted to ask you a question. How can dogs remind us of our own freedoms and ideas about being? One of the things I love about dogs is that they chose us, right? One of the few species that they saw the cave, they saw the fire, and they were like, look, dude, those people got meat. We don't have to go hunting anymore. They got a fire. They'll even let us lay with them. All we have to do every once in a while is bark all day long and then go with them. It seems like a good idea. Maybe we might want to go live in that cave. And so- I feel like they've made a particular choice to throw in their lot with us in partnership. And my dogs don't hold on to things. Everyone who's had a dog, you've had those moments where you're not happy about the kind of owner you've been, you know, that you've just been distracted. And my dogs always remind me that inside of me is a decent person, is a better person. I just like how they don't sweat the small stuff. They teach me also that I. I'm a part of this world, that I don't make this world. I belong to this universe. What is your most recent history with your dogs that are in your life now? Oh my gosh. My most recent history is taking care of two 14-year-old dogs, Webster Boy and Winnie. People ask me what kind of dogs they are, and I say they're North Carolina trash found on the side of the road in a good way. My ex and I had a dog named Samar. He was beautiful. He was a Rhodesian Ridgeback Great Dane mix, a big boy. He went to 12 years old. He was a lot of fun. We had to put him down one morning and that same evening I had a lesson and I was thinking about not riding, but I decided to go to the barn. I was crying and riding. It was good to connect with my horse, Alex, and horses are such gentle, sentient beings. And I was one of the last to leave and I literally got out of my car to close the gate and I'm getting back in my car and these two dogs come out of the woods. One lays down in front of my car and the other one comes up to my door, but they're not getting too close. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these dogs. But I was like, I can't deal with this right now. And I thought, ah, somebody calls me about it. Maybe I'll foster him. Next day, my dressage coach calls me and says, Sharon, you're the only one right now in the barn doesn't have an animal. We all have about four or five dogs. Many of them have been dropped off right here at this driveway. So guess what? I know you lost Samar just recently. Maybe you ought to come pick these dogs up. And I did. And they've been with me ever since. My life is, will we go on our long walk today? And sometimes Mr. Webster's like, nah, not doing it. And sometimes, you know, I really pick him up and say, no, start moving. Friend of mine's 80 years old and still runs his own lawn service business. I said, Mr. Walter, how do you stay vibrant? He goes, never stop moving. Yeah, Just keep moving no matter how painful, just keep moving. I love the story of how your present dogs came into your life. That's a gift. Yeah, my friend said, well, Sharon, I guess the universe figures you couldn't stay long without a dog. It just wasn't right. Yeah. And these dogs terrorized me. I'd never really had two dogs at the same time. And so it was a learning curve. And Webster is still the runner. He runs away. There's some dogs who never get it out of their system. Winnie can be off leash 
I have about eight acres down here and my neighbor has about 10 and my other neighbor has about 30. I had a house that was near the highway in the city and I wanted to move to the country because I thought, well, Webster and Winnie get out, which they did a lot. At least where we are is like a mile in any direction. And so really I got this place for my dogs. Without my dogs, I wouldn't have found my way to this place. I wouldn't have found myself. So my dogs have been of huge consequence to my living, how I choose to live. And my horse, too. I won't leave my family. Now, the area that you live in rural North Carolina, you and your neighbors call Gaylandia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. We have a kind of a joke about it. My actual property is called Sweet Negritude the kind of bittersweet of blackness, right? That there's a lot of struggle, but that I wouldn't have it any other way. But yeah, we call it Gaylandia because once you get to a certain part of the property, it's all queer folk back here. Awesome. I've so enjoyed speaking with you and you've really got me thinking about a lot of different things and what you are bringing to this conversation and the opportunity that your students have to study with you. What an incredible gift that you're bringing. Sharon, is there anything else that you feel that we haven't really touched upon that you'd like to express to our listeners? My book is forthcoming from Duke University Press. It's called An Other, A Black Feminist Consideration of Animal Life. Fall of 2023, I tell people it's like my second coming out party. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I can't wait to read it. As I tell people, I can't wait to read it too. <laughs> Where can we find you online and on social media? I always tell folks I'm not on the Twitterverse. Yes. But I do have a blog called The Professor's Table. I write about writing. I write about social justice issues. I write about cooking, one of my passions and loves. And I am also on Instagram at The Professor's Table. And I try to keep my posts joyful and funny and light. I really thank you for your voice. And I've so enjoyed speaking with you, Sharon. Oh my gosh. I've so enjoyed speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for just including me here and for the work that you do on the show. This is such an important topic. Thank you. It was a real joy to speak with Sharon and to hear about her fascinating work around animal studies. Both of us are working in the college setting, so for me to hear about somebody who's approaching their animal studies, I think all of these things, whether it be a queer, black, or feminist points of view, are related back to social justice issues. So I really, really appreciate what Sharon is doing in her work. And I really love the story about how her two dogs came into her life, how they showed up right after her previous dog had to be put down. And it was like a sign from the universe that she couldn't go a day without having a dog companion. I will eagerly be awaiting her book releasing this fall. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is made by, as it should be, a production company and content studio. It is made with the support of Scott Benaglio, executive producer, and Jack Summer, our producer and editor. Special thanks to Daniel Lampert, our neighbor and composer, for creating the music for the show. You can follow Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow our show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To sign up for our monthly email newsletter, you can go to dogsavethepeople.com. On the website, you'll also find show merch in our online gift shop. 
This includes shirts from the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, where profits go to supporting independent rescues and shelters. If you have any questions or submissions, please drop a note to the email address bark at dogsavethepeople.com. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People. Enjoy a walk with your dog outside and make it a great day for both of you. Thank you.